Hello and welcome to Making of a Historian, the podcast chronicling one grad student's quest to write his dissertation, teach a class, get a job, raise a baby, and try to stay sane during the coronavirus epidemic. This is the 10th episode in our ongoing series about work and play in the Industrial Revolution, and it is on the history of beer. If you are new to the show or just haven't been listening for a while, maybe you want to go back to episode one of this series. Uh, It can give you a little bit of the shape of the wider argument I'm making. But if you're just dropping in, I mean, you're not going to miss anything terrible if you start with this episode. So... The series that I'm doing now is is roughly following um, the themes of a class that I'm teaching this semester. And when I planned this class and I planned that I would be doing beer this week, I thought that it would be a little diversion, like something fun to talk about uh, as the students were starting to think about their final exams and their final paper from my class. And, and, and you know, it's kind of the point in the semester right now, right after spring break, where, where students are generally kind of like checked out a little bit and like they have a little bit of malaise and they, they need to be shaken a little bit in their chairs to, to start thinking again. Of course, that's in a, you know, usual time period now when teaching in the time of COVID-19. And uh, when we returned from spring break, everybody just had existential dread. But anyway, uh, when I planned this episode, the important thing is that I thought that would be a diversion. But I realized in doing my reading and preparing for class in this podcast that the story of beer actually is a, a really fantastic encapsulation of the themes of this series. Um, We can see in beer how, you know, different moral conceptions of how people should work and should have fun can interact with new recreations, new pastimes, and and thus create new kinds of, of, of people. And this is super important because I think that we can see through the story of beer so clearly the way that we got to where we are today. Because when I'm telling you this story of beer, a lot of the stuff is going to seem really initially strange. The idea of children drinking beer for breakfast because it was healthy, for example, is going to strike you as strange. But as we dig deeper into it, I hope that you can see that the story of our modern history of beer is influenced by this kind of you know new moral conception of work that happens in the Industrial Revolution. So, there's a lot of different ways we can um, address this, and I, I think that 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 how I'm going to do this lecture is I'm good, just going to tell you what beer is. What is beer? But that turns out to be a really complicated question, and so there's a lot of different ways that we can decide what beer is. Beer could be part of a nutritious breakfast. Beer could be a moral beverage. Beer is a commodity that's that's made in, in factories and sold. Uh, beer is says something about you. If you're a beer drinker, you could be cool, you could be uh, immoral, you could be lazy. Um, and finally, beer is something that is the subject of, of, of concern for people. You want certain people not to be drinking because it can affect them. And so we're going to deal with all of these different ways of looking at beer in turn. So beer, how, how, how is beer part 
of a nutritious breakfast. You know, I remember when I was a kid uh, and I would watch TV and the advertisements for a breakfast cereal would would come up and at the end they'd say, uh, you know, sugar pops are part of this nutritious breakfast and they'd show like a bowl of cereal and, uh, uh, you know, a a banana and a glass of milk or something. And uh, what's funny is that if they made those advertisements in, say, 1600, instead of a glass of milk, it would be a glass of beer. Beer before like 1700 was a drink for everyone at every meal throughout Northern Europe. And this was for a number of reasons. Water was often really, really unhealthy, particularly in cities. They didn't have like modern sanitation. They didn't have, you know, sewage treatment plants. So that the aquifers where people got their water from tended to spread disease. Beer and wine and other alcoholic beverages are one way of purifying water. Um, If you read medical doctors talking about the relationship between diet and health before the modern period, a lot of what they recommend is is how unhealthy it is to drink water. Um, Here's a quote from a a doctor named Andrew Board who wrote in 1542 in a book called Dietary for Health about what to drink. He says, quote, I myself, which am a physician, cannot away with water. Wherefore, I do leave all water and do take myself to good ale. And otherwise for ale, I do take good Gascon wine, but I will not drink strong wines. So this is not one of these things where where doctors of the past were ridiculous and didn't know what they were talking about. It was true. You could get diseases from drinking unpurified water. And so you needed, every culture needed a way of purifying their water. In uh, Northern Europe, I said it was, it was beer. In Southern Europe, it was wine. In Asia, it was tea. And because beer was drank so often and so much, it could provide a large portion of people's calories in a way that, frankly, was a lot more fun and enjoyable to consume than the, you know, dull rations of bread. It could sometimes, in some estimations, make up as much as one-fifth of people's daily caloric intake. And this was everyone. People drank beer breakfast, lunch, and dinner. Elizabeth, Queen Elizabeth, uh, drank beer at breakfast. Uh, People drank maybe a quart of beer and wine a meal, um, but this varied quite a bit. If you were a manual laborer, you might drink as much as a gallon of beer at every meal. Um, And of course, it wasn't just an everyday drink. Uh, Beer was a drink that people had special occasions. Um, If you had a a, a baby, you might homebrew your own beer uh, to celebrate. You might have a a local community feast called church ales, where families would uh, brew their own beer and then go out into the churchyard and sell it as kind of like a... uh, you know, a, a bake sale, but with homebrew, um, where people would get drunk and, and have fun and, and dance around and stuff. Uh, harvest, especially in, in England, uh, was accompanied by beer drinking. Harvest was a, a spike in agricultural employment. It was the time when farmers needed the most helping hands, and people would work really long hours in those really long summer days. And one way that this long, laborious, hot harvest harvest work would be made more palatable would be that the farmer not only paid money to the farm workers who helped him, 
but he would pay them in beer. So at the meal times, they would be given a lot of beer, and towards the end of the day, they'd just get drunk together. So that's that's how, how, how beer was just a part of people's everyday eating. But beer was also a kind of moral beverage. It stood for a particular kind of moral person. And, and this starts to become more marked when there starts to be more of a choice about what people drink. So I said that beer is one way that cultures have solved the problem of water spreading disease. But there were a lot of other different ways that started to come online for certain people around the 17th century. Um, the first, historically, was chocolate. Chocolate came from uh, uh, the Americas, uh, and back then it wasn't eaten in bars like we do today. I mean, not often. How most people consumed their chocolate was as a hot drink, similar to coffee. Chocolate contains a little bit of caffeine, and it also contains an alkaloid called theobromine, um, which can act as kind of a, a give you a nice little buzz. Um, so people drink chocolate as a, as a way of, 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 of feeling good, but also it served as a way of purifying water. Now in Britain, chocolate had a particular kind of connotation. All throughout the Spanish Empire, chocolate was considered kind of luxurious and uh, 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 exotic and, and sometimes feminine. It was, it was a drink that you drank in like lavish domestic interiors, often before sex. Um, but in England and in Britain in general, it was harder to get because it was a product of the Spanish Empire, and so it was, you know, more expensive. In Britain, the big drink in the 17th and 18th centuries was coffee. Coffee came from the Levant, uh, where we would call the Middle East now, and it started to be drunk by certain cool, virtuosic people in, in, in Oxford and London uh, in the 1640s and then in the 1650s. But by 1700, it was really drank by quite a lot of people. And then, of course, later in the century, tea drinking starts to capture more and more of the British uh, palate. Um, and this is in part because of imperial considerations. Uh, the East India Company had access to India and China, uh, and they had a lot more tea than coffee, and so tea became slightly cheaper. Also, tea was something that everybody could drink at home, whereas coffee, because in part it, it, it needed extra, you know, uh, uh, little doodads to, to actually brew, um, was drank more in public spaces like coffee houses. And, and, and just for some reason, was more of a male drink. So tea by 1800 becomes something that is, is, is a real cornerstone of the British diet as opposed to beer. And of course, by 1850, heavily sweetened tea is a key component of diets throughout the populace. And there were other beverages as well, not just these soft drinks of chocolate, coffee, and tea that uh, gave alternatives to beer. Around the 1720s, a number of bad state policies uh, encouraged the production of grain into gin, which led to about a, a, a generation of, of just complete uh, social breakdown uh, called the gin craze, where people would get really drunk on the streets from gin, in part because they 
just didn't have a social and, and cultural experience of drinking spirits that uh, strong. Um, and what's important here is how drinking became more of a choice. In, you know, say 1750, it was different from 1650. You didn't just need to drink beer with every single meal. You had a choice. You could drink chocolate or more likely coffee or even more likely tea. Or if you were rich, you could drink wine. Or if you wanted to get really drunk, you could drink gin. And because there was a choice, people started to associate these different drinks with different kinds of people. Beer became considered an honest, productive, British, loyal beverage. Unlike coffee, uh, which was thought of, you know, something that dried you out, made you fast, made you thin, beer made you fat and healthy. Unlike coffee, too, you could toast with beer. You couldn't raise a, you know, a, a little china cup of coffee and tea and clink your glasses together and give a toast to the king or to your drinking companion, but you could with beer. And so it was considered in some way more loyal and more social. And unlike gin, it didn't kill you. If you compare gin drinkers with beer drinkers, you saw that beer drinkers were more, you know, rotund and rosy cheeked, whereas gin drinkers were dead. And there's a fantastic image that compares gin drinkers and beer drinkers. William Hovark's uh, pair of engravings, Gin Alley, which you often see in history textbooks depicting the, uh, you know, social dislocation of the gin craze, but it's paired with an engraving called Beer Street. And Beer Street is fat and productive. Everybody's, you know, having fun, making out, working, and drinking beer. Another way of looking at beer is how it is sold and how it is produced. And here you have a completely different story, one that has somewhat different beginnings and ends and has somewhat different focuses. Here we're going to see two big themes come up that are absent from what I've talked about before. That is the theme of gender and the theme of the rise of large energy intensive organizations. So in the old traditional world, whenever that was, beer was often made as a home brew and often by women. When you look at probate records, records of, 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 of the goods that people had when they died, uh, you see that, you know, well-off households, about 30 to 40 percent of them had some brewing equipment of their own, which meant that they would make beer, uh, you know, either regularly or for particular special occasions like we discussed earlier. Beer making was also sometimes a hardship employment. If a family would fall on hard times, the, the wife might brew some ale and sell it at a church ale to make a little bit of extra money to, to, to make things go better. Or if a, a husband died, a woman might go into brewing ale and selling it from her house as a way of, of making ends meet the same way that a widow might take in lodgers at her house. But this started to change when the addition of hops from Flanders made beer more shelf-stable. This slowly turned beer more from a domestic product that was kind of made in small batches at home to an industrial product that was made in bigger batches for a market. So a number of things happen from this. First, you get a distinction between hopped and unhopped beverages. Uh, 
you get a, a thing called beer, which is hopped, and ale, which is unhopped and domestic. But also you get you get a process where um, the making of beer, this hopped beverage that can be, you know, that's more capital intensive, you need more stuff to make it, uh, also generated larger profits. And beer started to be sold more and more by brewers who were going to make money off of it, not just individual domestic alewives who might make it as a part of, 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 of their more varied domestic activities. This kind of, of beer making, this industrial beer making, um, spread from London and the South outwards over the you know period of, of century. Um, in the 18th century, in, in London specifically, you get the rise of incredibly large brewers who make really, really large amounts of beer. In part, this is because London just has such a dense population that there's a market for this capital-intensive, bulky good. Like, I mean, shifting beers is is hard. It's it's liquid. Anybody who's carried a, a, a case of beer to a party knows it's hard to shift. So having a dense population is essential for the development of a particular brewing industry. But brewing was not just uh, difficult because of the bulk, it became capital intensive. By, by that we mean it requires a lot of inputs on the outset to actually make work. You know, a, a poor alewife might not be able to afford the hops that, 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 that making beer required, but by the 18th century there was so much more that you needed to actually produce consistent beer for a mass market. Uh, brewers in London started to use the most technically advanced machinery. They started using Bolton and Watt steam engines. They started using thermometers, uh, hydrometers, a, a thing called a saccharometer that, 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 that measures uh, uh, the sugar in the beer, and, and, and a thing called an intemperator, which, which sprays water uh, uh, to cool down uh, a particular thing uh, to make it precisely at a particular temperature. And all of this allowed brewers to make more consistent beer cheaper, but it required the influx of capital. And this, having a capital and energy-intensive uh, uh, product, led to the consolidation of beer making in a smaller and smaller number of firms. Uh, by 1750, the 12 largest brewers of London accounted for about 40% of the city's output. 50 years later, in 1800, that was up to 77%, and it would only increase. This is, is important to note. This is the story of the modern world. You have capital-intensive industries that, that, that privilege large organizations, and these large organizations grow bigger and bigger and bigger. Now, brewers in, in, in England and, and, uh, use their, their capital strength to buy out public houses. This leads to a peculiar situation that, that people who've had, had uh, uh, drinks in, in, in England will, will, will attest to, where most public houses, most, most bars, have a particular relationship with the brewer, so that most of the beers that you get, if not all, are provided by a particular brewer. It's like you would have a, 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 a cool, uh, you know, an InBev uh, uh, bar and then an Anheuser-Busch bar. What's less understood about the story of the rise of modern brewing is that it's also a narrative about the rise of cheap 
energy. You needed a lot of energy to make beer. You needed to boil the wort, um, but you also need a little bit of, of heat to uh, uh, germinate the barley that's used for malt. And uh, this was not inconsiderable. In the, in the 16th century, wood accounted for about a quarter of the cost of brewing beer. And in the 18th century, there were new ways that, that, that allowed for the input of cheap coal rather than expensive wood, which also privileged the development of heavily capitalized industries. Cheap coal, in general, made this energy and capital-intensive business make more sense. Brewing is one of the first industries then of the Industrial Revolution that develops the modern phenomena where big, large organizations come to dominate an industry because of the advantages of cheap energy and capital rather than skilled use of, of, of labor like those old alewives. So there's another story that we can tell about how beer tells a story about us, how, how it's cool, how it, it, it represents us in a, in a, in a cultural way. It, it says something about our identities. Um, the story of London in the 18th century is the story of the rise of a particular kind of beer called porter. Um, porter uh, uh, was a, a thick black bitter beer um, that was, uh, you know, it, 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 it was very nutritious and so it came to be associated with manual laborers, particularly porters, people who carried stuff on their backs. Um, and this was difficult to make, and so it was the purview of these large capital-intensive brewing firms. It took somewhere uh, around 18 months to, to actually make a, uh, a batch of porter rather than the, 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 the ale that people might have been drinking before. So in London, this was a, so this created porter. But the big story of the particular kind of beer that tells a story about a person is the story of the India Pale Ale. I mean, today, IPA drinkers have a particular kind of connotation. If you looked at me in the street, you would probably know that I have a taste for IPA because of the way, way that I dress and the fact that I have like long, somewhat unkempt hair and that I have a beard and that I'm a white dude. There is a look uh, for IPA drinkers. And back in the 19th century when IPA became big, there was also a particular kind of connotation of IPA. Um, IPA is associated with India. Um, the old story is that beer needed to be heavily hopped uh, to be preserved on the long trip from England uh, to India. But that's not entirely true. Um, there were plenty of different kinds of beers that would make the trip. Uh, one of the reasons why this heavily hopped beer was popular in India was that it wasn't subjected to the same kinds of taxes that beer in England was subjected to. And so brewers could use more of the heavily taxed hops in their beer and the addition of large hops, like actually full hops into the barrels of beer on the long trip from England to India, uh, you know, had a, 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 a maturing effect on the beer that wasn't available in the mainland. But regardless, the drinking of IPA very quickly became associated with travel, not just to India, but to distant lands. The uh, main uh, early brand of beer, uh, Hodson's, I think it's pronounced. Uh, it has a G, and the G, I think, is silent. Um, Hodson's was associated with the entire British Empire. There was the feeling that wherever British people went, they could get Hodson's. Um, there was Hodson's in Canada, in Persia, in Siam, in Burma, in Australia, and in New Zealand. Um, 
And so IPA became associated with this kind of cool, masculine, exploring imperialism. If you were the sort of guy who wanted to go out and and climb the Matterhorn, for instance, you might, uh, after your trip, enjoy your relaxing trip uh, 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 to the bar with a little bit of IPA. This later became used in the domestic market, where the expensive IPAs that had more hops started to distinguish themselves from other beers by selling themselves in bottles that were more tamper uh, uh, evident. You couldn't, you know, it's it's fairly easy to water down or adulterate a keg, but it's much harder to water down or adulterate a bottle of beer, which has like a, a little tamper evidence seal on its actual bottle. Now, I spoke earlier about how beer was considered a moral beverage. It, it stood for a particular kind of person in the 18th century. But in the 19th century, it stood for a particular kind of immorality. And there's two ways that we're going to talk about this. First is, is how beer itself became adulterated and watered down and subject to, to people's concerns. And then about how beer drinkers became subject to people's concerns. So, Beer was expensive, as I've mentioned. Uh, uh, A number of its ingredients were highly taxed, particularly hops, um, and the industry was was in some ways tightly regulated. And this all meant that there was a lot of room for adulteration. If you went to a bad bar, your beer might be watered down somewhat. You know, just a little bit of water extends the keg out and makes the profits bigger and means that you're drinking a little bit less. But what's even more worrisome was that, at least in the 19th century, there were worries that people were adding drugs to the beer to hide the fact that it was watered down, and these drugs could cause poisoning. Um, There was a large-scale concern about the adulteration of the brewing industry. In part, this happened in the 19th century because it was the first time that you had the kind of industrial chemistry that could actually tell whether beer had been adulterated. You now, for the first time, had people who could, you know, look at something under the microscope and say, huh, this has a, you know, a, an alcohol content of 3.5, but when it comes from the brewers, it has an alcohol content of 5%. That means that it must be watered down, or they can look at it under a microscope and actually say, hey, look, there's little floating bits of, of, of drugs or opium or something. This, this has been adulterated. So the 19th century is the beginning of fears about adulteration of beer, in part because it's the beginning of the ability to tell whether beer had been adulterated or not. By the 1880s, because of a, a system of, of, of more active uh, in, investigation and licensing, um, this fear of adulteration had been mainly uh, dealt with. People were not so worried about their beer being adulterated by uh, immoral or, or unscrupulous publicans. But there was another fear that people were now cutting corners by the addition of things that shouldn't be in beer. Beer should just be you know, water, barley, and hops. But now all these industrial uh, uh, brewers were adding all these things that weren't really beer-like. They were adding flavorings and colorings. Um, They might add a little bit of extra alcohol. Uh, It wasn't real beer. Um, In Manchester, in the Midlands, in in, in the late uh, 
uh, 19th century, there was a mysterious disease uh, among heavy drinkers, which was at the time called alcoholism. And uh, it was eventually linked with arsenic poisoning that came from a, a particular brand of beer that had sucrose added to it that was generated from a catalytic process that uh, uh, accidentally made a little bit of arsenic. Uh, and so heavy drinkers got arsenic poisoning from it. But this was part of a wider worry that beer wasn't beer, that these industrial brewers were making beer that wasn't actually what beer was meant to be. Now, there's another way that beer became um, the subject of, 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 of people's moral concerns, and that's about beer drinkers. Beer stopped in the 19th century being its own category and started to be part of a wider category called alcohol. There were worries about people drinking too much uh, back in the 16th century. Uh, in, in the 16th century, there were concerns about uh, the fact that English troops weren't performing as well as they could in the battlefield because they were drinking too much. And this led to the first Licensing Act in 1552, which gave magistrates the power to, to grant and revoke licenses to establishments serving beer and alcohol. But by the 19th century, uh, this had changed. And beer was seen by many reformers as an example of, of, of something called alcohol, which was wholly bad. Um, all alcohol was to be avoided. Um, and this was like a really strong and, 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 and prevalent belief in many people. Many of the uh, 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 you know ardent social reformers of the 19th century believed that the big thing that they needed to reform was people's drinking, particularly poor people's drinking, drinking of all sorts. Not just hard liquor, uh, which was the concern of reformers in the 18th century, in the early 19th century, but all alcohol. You get a movement of the temperance movement from, from you know, temperance, just drinking less, drinking in moderation, drinking only lighter alcohols, to teetotaling. All alcohol should be outlawed and banned. All of these things that we now understand as alcohol, beer, wine, spirits, should be, should be outlawed. They're bad. Furthermore, beer had become um, not just uh, uh, something that people drink every day, but it became a kind of alcohol that was drank specifically by poor people. Um, even in the 18th century, it was observed by the uh, traveler Cesar de Saussure that the lower classes got drunk on beer and liquor in the day, but the upper classes got drunk on port and punch at night. But in the 19th century, there was greater, even greater concerns about these beer-drinking lower classes. Not just that they would be immoral because they were drinking too much, but that they were spending their money wrong. These poor people should be economical. They should be controlling themselves. They should be saving up their money so that they could stop being poor. And what are they doing? They're spending their money on beer and meat and, you know, bad food. They should be eat, not drinking expensive beer, but drinking cheap tea. It's, it's the avocado toast of the 19th century, a way of blaming poor people for their own poverty by the fact that they indulge a little bit in a consumer good that's seen as unnecessary. Another worry was that women uh, started to drink beer in public places. The, the alehouse, uh, for, for whatever reason, was long associated as a, with, with men. It's a masculine space. Um, but in the 19th century, there were lots of alehouses that women started to attend and drink beer publicly. And there, there were concerns that this represented a, a larger breakdown of morality. 
What I want to point out is that that these concerns that in some way feel familiar to us, concerns about the fact that that alcohol drinking leads to immorality, that alcohol drinking is 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 a sign of of economic distress, that that alcohol drinking is bad for particular kinds of people, is associated with uh, uh, people who are powerless. Women shouldn't drink beer. Poor people shouldn't drink beer. The rich, you know, they're not as much of a cause for concern. And we live in this world today. We live in the world where we understand beer as a special kind of drink, as a form of alcohol that is to be limited to certain times and to certain people. If you're under 21 in America, you're not allowed to drink alcohol, any alcohol, even small beer, even kombucha, even those those little, you know, uh, mildly alcoholic uh, medicinal teas, the ones with the black caps you need to be 21 or over to, 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 to drink. And why is that? It's because we understand all forms of alcohol as having a potential effect on our morals. If you drink them in the wrong way, your morals can be impugned. So I... I the thing that I want to get from this is that we have this really long period where a number of big changes happen to the way that people work. You have the development of the factory system, you have mechanization, you have the lar- uh, rise of large organizations. And on the personal side, for people to actually be able to interface with this, they need to develop particular kinds of forms of self-control. Having those forms of self-control uh, makes you a good person. Being able to wake up at a specific time and go to your workplace for a specific set number of hours and then go to sleep and constantly and fastidiously do this work and slowly, slowly, slowly and economically uh, 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 gain more and more stuff for yourself, accumulate uh, uh, no, your, 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 your own store of goods. But at the same time, people still need to have fun. They need to let loose. And the ways that people had had fun and let loose before this new world uh, became increasingly inappropriate. You no longer had church ales at you know the local parish church when everybody had moved to the city. You no longer could get drunk at harvest time at particular you know lovely summer evenings when you worked the same number of hours every single day throughout the entire year because your work was lit by gaslight rather than by the sun. But people still needed to fill in their fun. And like many people before and since, they filled in their fun in part with beer. This became, uh, uh, on the one hand, it became something that capitalists could make money off of. It, it, it became one of the earliest capitalized, energy-intensive, large organizations out there. But it also became something to be concerned about. Are people having fun in the right ways? Is their fun going to really reflect this new kind of person that we all recognize that we need to be in the new industrialized world? And we are, in many ways, those new kind of people. I think that most of my listeners probably drink in what the people in the 18th century would consider to be moderation. We drink only at certain times, maybe on the weekend, maybe only a couple drinks, never binging. Very few of us probably drink more than three drinks a night, even in this time of COVID-19. And if we did, we would consider that to be a moral failing. If we knew that a friend was drinking a six-pack a night or drinking a, a quart of bourbon, we would we would reach out to them and say, hey, uh, there's something wrong. And there's something wrong because we would consider it not just a health problem, but a moral problem, an example of a moral failing. But 
all of our pleasures are like this now. All of the things that we do for fun are in some ways liable to that same kind of moral critique. Are we having fun in the right ways? Are we drinking alcohol too much? Are we playing video games too much? Are we, you know, filling up our time with the kinds of things that will make us the people that we should be? You might be listening to this podcast because you believe that this form of leisure and recreation of listening to an overeducated dude talk to you about the past is a way of improving yourself. You could just be drinking beer and playing video games. Anyway, um, thank you very much for, for, for listening. Um, if you've listened this far to this episode, uh, you must be a devoted listener. I have something special just for you. Uh, I uh, have started a Patreon um, in part just because I've made a lot of these and I thought, hey, I should get a couple bucks for them, right? Um, and also because my wife wanted to, if I get money, I, I'll be able to show my wife that uh, uh, the podcast is actually something I should put effort into and it's not like a, a wider distraction. So uh, you can check it out at patreon.com slash making of a historian. You can also find a link to it on our webpage at historian.live or our Facebook uh, page. If you haven't been to those places, just go to them, um, check them out, share them with your friends share them with your in-laws. Um, I would deeply appreciate it. Uh, I've been making this for a long time. I've made, I think nearly 150 episodes and, and yeah, if I could make a bit of money, that, that would be nice. Um, thank you to all of my listeners. Thank you to the people who've reached out and said that you're listening in this, in this strange period. It means a lot. Thank you to, uh, Jonathan Lear who made our music and Duncan Barton who made our image. Thank you to all the mother-in-laws out there who diligently listen to the podcast. Uh, if you like the show, rate and review us on iTunes. Do all those things that you do with social media that you enjoy. Next time, we will be uh, talking about the evolution of sports in the 19th century. Join us then. <laughs>